If you have a Bible next to you, if you could open up to the book of Isaiah, which is on page uh, 971, I think it is, 571 in your black-covered Bible. Isaiah chapter 6, I'm going to look at this morning. This is Isaiah sharing how his ministry as a prophet began. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at his voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you that we have breath in our lungs. We thank you that we have eyes to see and hearts and minds that can think and feel. And we thank you this morning that we can come and we can hear through your word what it is that you would want to say to us. As we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would help us to understand what it is that you want us to know. And that as we, as we go out of this room today, that we might love you more. That we might be more grateful and thankful for all that you've done as we look at this little section of the life of Isaiah. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was once speaking someplace, and a man came up to me afterwards and let me know that he was very upset by something that I had said in my message. Uh, I had mentioned, kind of as an aside, in a message that was about grace, something from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 10. And in that verse... Uh, the Bible teaches that apart from the grace of God, that we are God's enemies. And, and what it means is not that God has turned against us somehow, but that people have turned against God, that they've joined the other side. And when I said this, it bothered this man very much, and he came, after, he came up to me afterwards to talk to me about it. And I appreciated that he came to me because I thought it took some, some courage, a little bit of, of guts to do that. And I also appreciated that he was upset because, in truth, that statement is a very upsetting statement. 
And so we talked for a while, and it was a very friendly conversation, and we shook hands at the end, and I would consider him to be a friend. But what he was saying to me was this. Is he said, when you say things like that in a message, what happens is it drives people away from God. It's kind of offensive and upsetting. And he said, what people need to know and hear is just that God loves them. And what you need to tell people is that the God of the universe cares about their life and loves them. That's what people need to know. And the question that I want to try to answer this morning, I want us to think about a little bit, is, is that man right? I mean, certainly the God of the universe loves people. That truth is on every single page of this book. But the question I want to think about is, is that all that people need to know? Or is there more to the story that's important to say? There was a really famous pastor that I saw once interviewed on CNN. And after some opening interview questions, uh, the person who who was asking this pastor a few things said to him, do you believe in a God who judges sin? And I could tell that this pastor got a little bit uncomfortable and the question had sort of caught him off guard and he took a minute and he kind of recovered and here's what he said. He said, there are so many things that are bad that are going on in the world today. People are losing their jobs. There's hurt. There's pain. There's divorce. There's all kinds of terrible things happening out there. And he said, I just want to stay positive. He said, I don't, I don't want to talk about judgment. I don't want to talk about sin. I just want to be upbeat. And I have to tell you, when I heard that, there's a lot in me that really loves the fact that he said that. I mean, the Bible is an incredibly positive book overall, and I personally like being around really positive people, don't you? And if you have to sit on an airplane next to a person who's extremely positive or next to a person who's extremely negative and it's a long flight, don't you want the positive person? In this pastor that I'm watching, I would want to be sitting next to him on a long flight to Europe. But if while we were on that flight, the pilot got on the intercom and said, ladies and gentlemen, I have some terrible news. We've miscalculated the amount of fuel that we need to complete this trip. We didn't put enough in the tank. And we have about five minutes left. If the pilot said that, And all of the things that I had done wrong in my life came to mind. And I turned to this man, this pastor, and I said to him, will God judge me for this wrong? And he turned to me and said, you know what? I don't like to talk about that. I just like to keep things positive. What I would do is I would grab that man by the collar and I would say, I want to know the truth. I need to know the truth. Wouldn't you? Here's the thing. God tells us some really hard things in this book. Should we repeat them? Do we have, in some sense, a responsibility to repeat them because the stakes are really high? In this passage that we're looking at today, I'm just going to tell you straight, this is a tough one. Uh, This is a a series that we're doing where people come face-to-face with God. We've tried to look at many of the people in the Bible who who came face-to-face with them, how it impacted their life. And if we were going to keep everything positive in this series, this would be a great one to skip. 
because it's a tough passage. And Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God, as I just read. Now, Isaiah, if you know anything about him, he was a prophet, which meant that he was called by God to be kind of a spokesperson for God to the people. And this passage, as I said earlier, describes his calling into that work for God. And he tells, he tells us the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that adds credibility to what he's saying. He's saying there was a specific time that something incredible happened to me. And he says, I saw God. And when I saw God, I was brought into his throne room, and there was God sitting on his throne. And Isaiah says, God was high, and he was lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the entire temple. Now, the train of a robe is symbolic of majesty. How many of you back in the day uh, watched Princess Diana get married? Anybody remember that wedding? It must have been 25, 30 years ago, something like that. I remember watching it as a kid with my mother, and my mother kept commenting on the train of Princess Diana's dress because it was so long and flowing. And she just thought that was wonderful because it looked so majestic. And that's the idea here, that God is so majestic that the train of his robe actually fills this entire temple. And Isaiah says that above God, there were two seraphim. Now, the word seraphim means flame, or it means a burning one. And what Isaiah saw were these two fiery angels who had six wings. It's hard to imagine what they looked like, but with two of the wings, these fiery angels were covering up their eyes as if the glory of God was so bright that not even this angelic being could stand it. And with two wings, they were covering their feet, which is a symbol of humility before God. These fierce, mighty creatures are humble before him. And Isaiah says, with two of their wings, they were flying in the air, and they called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, the word holy, you might know, it means perfect. It means absolutely morally pure, completely set apart from anything else. There is nothing else like something that is holy. And the fact that these angels said, holy, 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 is really an amazing statement. If you went up to somebody that you knew had just gotten back from a vacation, a cruise, let's say, and you said to them, how was your cruise? Imagine they said to you for a second, this cruise was perfect. And you, and you said to them, really? It was perfect. They said, it was perfect. You say, wait a minute, you mean that there was absolutely nothing that went wrong during your cruise? Yes, it was 100% great. There was nothing about this cruise that in any way let me down. And they said, in fact, this cruise wasn't just perfect, it was perfectly perfect. And you say, well, well, wait a minute. I mean, I understand that it's good, but how can something even be perfectly perfect? If it's already perfect, how can it be perfect in that perfection? And the person said, no, it was so good that it was perfectly perfect in all of its perfection. What you would say is, no, you're just being ridiculous. <laughs> something can't get better than perfect, and something can't get better than holy which is why this statement about God is so extreme. Not only is he holy, but he's holy, holy. And not only is he holy, holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. In other words, God's purity, God's goodness, God's perfection, God's completeness, God's set-apartness is absolutely extreme. 
It is off the charts. It is almost ridiculous. And when the seraphim speak this sentence, the foundations of the entire room begin to shake. And smoke begins to fill the entire space. It's as if the building itself is crumbling under the weight of the perfection of God. And Isaiah is just standing there witnessing all of this. And his response is not what you might expect. You know, you might think that his response would have been, wow, this is awesome. I am seeing God face to face, and it's unbelievable. Six wings and, and the boldness, intensity of God. I'll wait until I get back and tell my wife about this. But his response to coming face to face with God is absolute terror. Isaiah responds with terror. Okay, this is not a pleasant place. This is not a place that he wants to be. He wants to do anything but be where he is right at this time. And the Bible says that Isaiah said to himself, or maybe out loud, maybe he screamed it, maybe he whispered it under his breath, I don't know, but his response was to say, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How many of you have ever showed up to a party underdressed? You ever get there and like everybody's in suits and you're wearing a t-shirt and sweatpants? Ever happened to you? Or everybody's in really nice dresses and, and you're not and... You know, you try to enjoy yourself, but the whole time you have sort of this inward sense like, I'm, I'm not meeting up to where I ought to be right now. Uh, back in the day, uh, they used to have kings. We don't have kings today, at least not generally. But back in the day, if you presented yourself before a king improperly, the result would be your death. Okay, if a king summoned you and you showed up and boxers and a tank top, it was not going to go well for you at that time. And when you stood in front of that king, you would realize, I am woefully underprepared. I am completely underdressed. And that's how Isaiah felt in this moment. Isaiah's response to this setting was, I am ruined. I am literally going to disintegrate. I am unclean. I am unworthy. I'm standing not just in front of holy, but holy, holy, holy. And God's presence, it's like it peels back the layer of his skin. And he knows God has seen straight into my heart. What he's found there does not stack up. And Isaiah says, I am a dead man. I have seen God face to face. Now, the Bible teaches that the destiny of every human being is to stand before God like that. That is the destiny of every human being. The position that Isaiah is in right here will be the position that all of us, that everyone is in. Every person will come, Coram Deo. Every person will stand face to face with God. Let that sink in for just a second. Do you, do you have that text open in front of you? Take a minute just to read that and imagine yourself in that place. Imagine yourself in Isaiah's 
shoes. In our culture today, it's hard to understate how offensive that is to some people. This idea, this concept that we would all stand before God and be like this, to many people, is incredibly offensive. In fact, it used to be that 50, 60, 70 years ago in the, in the U.S., people, most people just assumed that that was true. But nowadays, things have really changed. The Bible teaches that this is an objective truth, that this is an objective reality. In other, in other words, it's not just true for some people, that it's true for all people. An objective truth is true for all people, not just for some people. But what's really important to know about our culture and our day and age is that our culture, many people believe that objective truth does not exist. That there is no truth that's applied to all people of all times and of all places. Our culture sometimes seems, sees truth as being like a taste. There's some people that like hamburgers. And there's other people that like hot dogs. And there's other people that are vegetarians. And so you just choose the one that you like best and works best for you. And somebody else might choose another thing, but it's not objective. It's just a taste. There's different things that some people like and other things that other people like. An example of this might be cheating on your taxes, for instance. Now, you may say, I believe that cheating on my taxes is wrong for me. And another person might say, okay, I respect that you feel that that's wrong with you. But you know what I think? I think that the government wastes so much of our money. I mean, I've read the reports where they spend a $100 on a toothpick, and, and I feel like it's okay for me to cheat on my taxes because it's being stolen from me and misused in the first place. That's my truth. That's your truth. If that works for you, good. This is the thing that works for me. And so what we do is we agree to disagree. But the problem becomes, if you say, I believe that cheating on taxes is not just wrong for me. I believe it's wrong for everyone. That it is an objective, moral truth. And what the person would say is, is, they would say, how can you say that? They would say right and wrong is just a, it's a taste. There is no objective standard. A person gets to define what's true and what isn't true by themselves. And who are you to tell me how I have to live? And that is the turnoff of the Christian faith. In our culture right now, I, I believe people are turning on the Christian faith because what the Christian faith faith teaches is there is such a thing as objective truth and in the end the only one whose tastes count are God's. That is a hard statement. And what this teaches is that when we stand before the holy, 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 we will not meet the standard. Isaiah is probably a really good guy, right? I mean, at least compared to some. He was a prophet. He was a married man. I think he was a good husband. 
And if this man, a good guy, stands before God and says, Woe to me! I am ruined! What will we say when we stand before God? This is not a popular thing to tell people, by the way. This isn't good party conversations. But here's the thing. If there's a chance, if there's even a chance that this is true, don't you want to know? It's so interesting. I would be really upset if my financial advisor told me that everything was rosy, even though I was broke, because he didn't want me to feel bad. I'd be upset if my doctor neglected to tell me that I had cancer just because he wanted to keep it positive. I wouldn't be happy if my weatherman didn't tell me about a tornado because he didn't want me to get scared. Or if my mechanic wouldn't tell me that my car was unsafe because he didn't want to interrupt my travel plans. I want a clock that tells me the right time, even if I'm running late. I want a smoke alarm that's willing to wake me up in the middle of the night, even if I want my sleep. I want a stoplight that turns red, even if I'm in a big hurry. I want to know the truth. I, I need to know the truth. And the question is, why should it be any different with eternal things? The most important questions in all of life are our eternal destiny. I remember when I was in junior high, somebody said to me, I was at a camp, and, and they mentioned this in some way. I don't remember how it was, but I just remember walking back to my cabin of this camp and thinking, there is going to be a day where I'm going to stand before God. And for me, at that time, as a seventh grader, it, it, it woke me up. It shook me. I thought, well, what would that be like? What would I say? What's going to happen? If there's something that I ought to be alarmed about, I want to be alarmed about it. And, and for myself, I look back, and I'm just glad that somebody told me that. I actually really struggled putting together this message that I'm talking about this morning. I didn't sleep very well last night. I couldn't get to sleep, and it was about 1 in the morning. I was still tossing and turning. And then my alarm, I set my, my clock ahead, but I didn't realize that my alarm had a function where the clock automatically set my alarm ahead. And so I ended up, my clock got set ahead two hours ahead instead of just one hour ahead. So I got up really, really early in the morning thinking that I had gotten up at the, at the right time. But it, it, this message was hard for me because it just feels so negative. You know what I'm saying? And I, I wanted to be really careful because I don't, I don't want to understate something. I don't want to overstate something at the same time. You know, there's, there's people that we've all met that are kind of the opposite of that preacher that I was telling you about at the beginning who they're always talking about sin and they're always talking about judgment. You know, there's people that, that hold up picket signs as if sin and, and, and judgment is like the main message of the Bible. They almost enjoy talking about those things. But you know what's interesting about Jesus? There's a time where he stood and he looked over the city of Jerusalem and he thought about all the problems of this city and all the consequences that they were going to face, and he just wept. There's some hard things. There's some hard news in the Bible. God weeps over those things. So here's what I want to say. Even though we talk about hard things, sin is not the main message of the Bible. 
Sin is not at all the main message of the Bible. The Bible is a story about God's grace to sinners. That's the main message of the Bible. But if it's a story about God's grace to sinners, it has to talk some about sin, right? Does that make sense? Remember the movie Star Wars? Uh, at the beginning of the movie Star Wars, you've got that text that goes up the screen, remember? You know what that text is there for? It's there to set the context for the whole film. So when you read that text, what you know in each one of the movies, I think this is true, you, you know that now that there's this evil empire who has taken control of the galaxy and they're abusing people and manipulating people and they're very cruel. And if that part gets skipped in the movie, then all of a sudden you've got this guy who's on the scene named Luke Skywalker that you don't really know or care about. It's like, what, what's the point? If you don't understand that there's a problem, what's the big deal that there's a man named Luke Skywalker? What's the point of watching the movie? Every movie's actually like that. Even a chick flick starts out with a woman or a man who's very lonely. That's the context. Their life isn't going well. There's bad news going on here. And so now you're interested in, in how this movie is going to end. If somebody hears that God loves them, that God really loves them, that he cares about their life, and they hear it again and again and again, but they have no context to know why that's important, I think what begins to happen over time is it starts to sound corny. Do you know what I'm saying? If I hear again and again and again that God loves me, but, but I don't realize I, I need that, I'm desperate for that, it loses its power. If I were to pull out a, a nice cold glass of milk right now, and a, a, a jug of milk, and I put out a bunch of cups, and I said to everybody in this room, you've got to try this milk. This is really good milk. And I said, come on up. Let's just hit the pause button in the service. Have some milk, everybody. Some of you would say, oh, cool, I, I like milk. Some of you would be like, no, I don't like milk. That comes from a cow's udder. And some of you would be, you know, someplace in between. But if, before I said that, I had given all of you the hottest pepper in the world to eat, it's called a Carolina Reaper, there would be a huge line of people who were coming up to get that milk, right? All of a sudden, you see that milk a little different, and everybody in the room is desperate for a glass of milk. That's what knowing the context does. It makes us desperate for a cure. And if a person doesn't understand that they're desperately sick, they'll never have an interest in finding the cure. I think that's one reason that we've got to be honest with people. Do we need to sometimes tell people hard news? I think we do. But I think that people are smart. And I think that people want to be treated like grown-ups. Uh, adults don't want everything to come with a candy coating. You know what I mean? And, and in this book, one thing I appreciate about it so much is that God treats people like adults. God doesn't focus on the bad news, but he's not afraid to skip it because it might offend us. Sin is not the main message of the Bible, but sin is the context. The main message of the Bible is the cure, that we are people who need a cure. And if you read on, you see that so clearly, right? The context has been set. And now, in verse 6, we're told what happens next. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, 
having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Okay, this, this was like a cool glass of water to Isaiah, right? You, what, you've, what you've got here is you've got a horrible context and then you've got grace. This is God stepping in to fix the problem that we've created, right? This is God cleaning up the mess that we have caused and this burning coal that this angel brought to Isaiah and put on his lips symbolically removes his guilt. This is God removing Isaiah's guilt. And this is what every person needs when they stand before God. No person has what they need to be able to stand on that day. There's no person that has what they need from themselves to be able to say, I'm not ruined. I can live. And so you have God stepping in to help, providing the cure. Remember that passage that I said about being God's enemies? It goes like this. It says, well, we were enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. I heard a story one time. I don't know if this is true or not. Um, I think one of my friends told me this, but he said that um, he was trying to discipline, he was trying to teach his son something, his young son, and his young son had taken, had, had done something really wrong. It was kind of a, a bad thing for an eight-year-old to do, and so the father brought the son into a, a private room, and he said, what you have done is, is very bad. And uh, he said, I need to punish you for this because you are my son, who I love. And, and the story goes that he took a paddle out of, his, um, out of his desk, and the son was terrified that he was going to get paddled. But what the father did was the father kind of pulled down his own pants and started paddling himself as hard as he could in front of the son. And he said to the son, I I'm going to take this that you deserve. I will do it to myself instead. And I thought that was kind of dramatic, you know, and it seemed a little weird, and I couldn't quite figure out how all of that worked. But here's the thing. It is an illustration of what God has offered to people, that God sees this situation. He sees in each person that everyone ought to die, but God does love people. And he sent his own son, Jesus, into this world to die on our behalf. We made the mess. God takes it himself and cleans it up for us, and that is incredible news. But the thing is, that news doesn't mean much to a person who doesn't understand sin, who doesn't understand their need for it. Uh, a few years ago, I, I met a friend, um, and it was the beginning of spring. It was, it was that first day of spring, you know, when everything's beautiful outside, and he had just purchased a Jeep, and it was kind of a junker. It was an old Jeep, but uh, it, was, it had no top to it, you know. And so I, I parked and met him, and we just drove around in this Jeep for a long time. It was great. And we came back, and we were going to go to one other place. And he said, well, why don't I just drive you in the Jeep? And I said, well, I don't want to leave my car here. But I thought about it, you know, because I, I get a ride in the Jeep. And finally, I decided, I'll take my car. And he didn't know where it was, and so he was going to follow me. And so we did. We, we drove, and... Uh, the, the direction that we had to go had some back roads that were dirt roads, and it was real weavy and turny, and he was behind me. Well, I kept driving, and I, I looked behind, and I didn't see him. You know, he was gone. 
And so I, I kind of pulled the car over to wait, and he didn't show up. And so I turned my car around, and I drove down the road, and there he was. He had hit a tree. He'd gone right into the ditch and hit a tree. And, and just as I pulled up, he was getting out of the car, you know, kind of like this. Uh, the car looked like it had been totaled, and uh, he had blood all coming down his forehead. Now, fortunately, he was okay. His head had just hit the steering wheel. Well, I walked over to the Jeep, and we started to look around to see what the damage was, and I saw something that terrified me. Uh, it turned out that someone had removed the passenger seat of this Jeep, and when they had put the seat back in, they hadn't bolted on the back of the seat. They just bolted on the front. And so what happened was that passenger seat had slammed right up into the dashboard, and there was this huge dent in the dashboard where that, that, that seat had flipped up. And I thought to myself, that would have been my head if I had gotten into that Jeep. And I remember going home that day and thinking, I came this close to death. And the feeling that I had inside of me was like this sense that doom had been averted, right? This sense of joy, this sense of I'm on borrowed time, this sense of I should be dead, but instead I live. And what my point is today is this. If I'd never seen that, if I'd never seen that I should have been dead, but I live instead, the power of that moment would have been lost on me. That's, that's part of what the teaching of this book does, is, is in this book, God doesn't sugarcoat the bad news. But the purpose is so we might understand and enjoy and be thankful and grateful for the good news. It's a good thing. Let me just briefly tell you how this works out at Grace. At, at Grace, what we assume is that everything that's in the Bible is there for a purpose. That if God didn't want us to know it, he wouldn't have written it. And so when we teach, when we preach on Sunday mornings, what we generally do is we generally try to go through books of the Bible or we go through sections of the books, books of the Bible. For instance, for this series that we're doing right now, we just tried to think of who are all the people in Scripture who came face-to-face -face with God. Let's teach about them. Uh, we did a series recently on the book of Ruth. We just took the book and, and we went through it. We did the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we spent some time in a big section in the book of Hebrews. We, uh, for years, kind of went, went uh, back and forth through the book of Mark. And we do that a lot. Now, sometimes we also do topical series, right? That, that would be a series like Bitterness and Forgiveness. We did that several months ago. Or a series on our vision statement or something like that. That's different. We're, we're taking some thoughts or some needs in the church, and we're going to the Bible to see what it says about those things. And there's nothing wrong with doing topical. But if all we ever did was just topical series, do you know what would probably happen? What would probably happen, at least for myself, is I would talk a lot about the things that I wanted to talk about. Or I'd talk a lot about the things that I thought that you wanted to talk about, right? But by just going through books of the Bible, what we're able to do is we're able to talk about the things that God wants us to talk about. We've been kind of kicking around, maybe going through the, the book of 1 Corinthians in chunks. And I have to tell you, 
there are things in the book of 1 Corinthians that I would never decide to do if I just had my choice of what I was going to teach. The, the Corinthians were messed up people. Just like we're messed up people, right? And God had something to say to them that he wants us to know here too. And what we try to do is this here. I hope that you feel this when you come to our church is we don't want to focus on the hard parts. We don't want to focus on the bad news, but we don't want to skip the bad news either because the bad news sets the context for the good news. And the good news of Scripture shines. I hope you find that here. I really do. And as, as you come here on Sunday mornings and hopefully learn a few things from this book, as you study it on your own, as you're a part of a, a group that's bringing your life to the truth of Scripture, what, what we hope is that over a lifetime, a person really begins to understand what God wants to say to them in, in a way that's united and, and in a way that captures everything, I hope. I have to tell you, it's so freeing for me as a teacher not to feel like I have to be God's editor. I don't come up here and feel like I have to edit this. What I feel instead is like I get to be his ambassador. Right? An ambassador is somebody who just tries to say what he thinks the king would say. And that's what I get to do. That's what I'm free to do. I hope you feel that freedom too really do. I hope that in, in a culture that really struggles with some of the hard news of the Bible, that you feel this sense of freedom to be God's ambassador. You know, that, that pastor, just getting back to him for a minute, the one who said that he wanted to keep it positive all the time, I think he had really good intentions in saying that. I really do. I don't think he's a bad guy. I want that too. But you know, what he said before that was so true. When he said that there are so many bad things that are happening in people's lives, he was absolutely right. I mean, people's lives are devastated. People are struggling. People are hurting. Marriages are failing. People in our culture often feel like they have no hope and they're not sure why. And what I think we are free to do as an ambassador, is we are free to lovingly, patiently, compassionately, kindly let people know why it is that life is such a mess. The Bible presents real answers to that question. Why is the world a mess? Why hasn't God stepped in right now, this moment, to fix it? How do we handle suffering? What do I do with the disappointment that's in my life? Where is it from? The Bible has answers to that question. The problem is some of those answers are hard to hear. Some of those answers aren't always what we want to know. And in the context of a world that's broken, we have such good news. Let's tell it. Let's pray. Father, I want to just stop and thank you this morning for the respect that you give people. That you do not just um, uh, sugarcoat the Bible, sugarcoat truth, sugarcoat reality, encase it in chocolate. And at the same time, you don't beat us down with our 
our, our failure. You, you tell us the truth, and then you give us hope. And I love that. Thank you that you treat us like adults. Thank you that you treat us like we can think and we can understand. And thank you that in a world where it's so hard to know what's true and right and how to live and how not to live, you just tell us. And I just think that's great. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you that he came to clean up our mess and that that is something you offer to every person for free. No one has to stand before you and say, woe to me. Because of Jesus, we can be accepted by you. And we can know you and be your children. We thank you for that truth and pray that it would sink in to us more and more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.